Welcome to Soil Health Lab's Plug and Plant Podcast, engaging farmers, ranchers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome to the Plug and Plant Podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And this is our fifth episode in our Growing Resilience series out of our time spent in South Dakota in back in uh, 2020 February, 2020 right? February, yeah. So this is the, the final podcast out of the Mitchell recording that we had. And we started looking at some of the more abstract ideas like resilience, uh, soil structure, and then how soil structure would affect things like infiltration and available water capacity. And then we, we just went on to a more general discussion about using perennials in, in marginal land, you know, waterways, buffer strips and things like that. And some of the really practical questions that the guys had, you know, how do you, how do you keep those buffer strips in without, you know, and then tolerating some of the weeds. So these are things that the guys were grappling with. And I, I think, once again, a really honest conversation that the guys were having. That's one of the biggest things that stands out about these interviews to me. Uh, is the honesty and is the practical nature of the discussions. These are farmers that are really going through difficult, challenging times and being able to sit around the table and just talk to one another about those times and their approaches, you get some of the most honest, practical discussions that I think we've ever had. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, the roundtable discussion is, you know, that's opened our eyes uh, to to rather than just doing one-on-one interviews. You know, the guys... You know, after a couple of hours of time with each other, tend to become a lot more relaxed. And and you know, I think they were honest all the way through. But um, you, you can see that shining out uh, in in all of these um, podcasts. And it's a lot easier to not get nervous and lose your cool around Buzz Clute when you've got other people there. <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll get out of the way. Everyone around the table will introduce themselves, and then Kim Vlieger will open it up. My name is Charlie Edinger, and I live in Mitchell, but mainly farm west of Mitchell. My name is Daniel Harsh, originally from Clayton, South Dakota, currently live in Freeman. Hi, I'm Craig Staley. Um, I farm with my brother, Gene. Bryce Rabenhorst from Salem, South Dakota. So I'm Sarah Bowder. I work as an agronomy field specialist with SDSU Extension. And here is Kent starting out the conversation, talking about soil resilience. Okay, so let's talk about... um, you know, some of the resiliency that can be built into your, into your operation through, through a lot of practices we've been talking about. We talked a lot about no-till, cover crop, um, integrating livestock, um, and Daniel's, um, Daniel's operation. Um, what are some ways, you know, that a producer can transition to that? And what are some, I'm curious most, what are the benefits that you guys see, especially on, on these weather extreme years? Obviously last year was really wet, and we're wet now. Um, conversely, how does the, that same resiliency, how does it play out on a dry year? Um, what are some of the things that you see? You know, a lot of the same practices you're doing, we're saying benefit you on a wet year and on a drought year. How do we, how do we explain that to, to a producer that's maybe looking to transition to something like this? 
Well, as far as you know, wet versus dry years, I, I I've never had a cover crop in my area. Now you go in lower precipitated areas, but I've never thought that I ever had. I've never seen a yield reduction from the cover crop using too much moisture. I've let rye go right to the boot stage and had a dry year, and I just have never seen it reduce the yield because of it used too much moisture in this area, but we haven't had any really terrible drought. Even in 2012, we didn't we weren't as dry as south of here, but I, I've let, you know, stuff grow. I usually let it grow farther than I think I should just because I'm trying to use, I want to keep that water, use as much water as I can instead of, you know, doing it the other way. So I, I just have never seen a yield decrease because of it. And in a wet year, those cover crops will help you tremendously with trafficability, having a live, like this year, you know, if you got a cover crop growing out there, uh, a rye or wheat, you know, even if it is fairly wet with that living root, you'll be able to plant and get it planted and not, not have uh, as many issues if you just go out and plant in the mud. I mean, it'll, you'll be able to you won't have sidewall compaction because of all those ruts like you would if, if you just go into a real muddy field. Do you feel like that thatch layer helps you on a dry year too? When you talk about it didn't hurt you, but do you feel like there's some addition, additional benefits to having grown that cover crop when the year well, is we, a little drier? Weed control, for sure. Well, it's just like insulation. I mean, I think I heard a speaker talk about it. It's like insulation in your attic. You take some insulation out, you're going to have heat escape. I mean, you take that insulation layer, that thatch off the surface, you're going to have moisture wicking, the transpiration taking place. So, yeah, it's definitely important, especially important in a dry year. Thinking back to 2012, we had a situation where we, our corn, we're in 22-inch rows, so we were no-tilled into a wheat stubble field that had a cover crop in 13. We went out in July, um, because of that extra moisture and stuff that we had there, uh, the soil temperature with underneath that thatch, we were running, it was like about 105 degree air temp. The soil temperature was about 84 degrees. We went across the road to the neighbors in 38 inch row conventional tillage. His soil temp was over 112. Um, so we know that there's a benefit of keeping the soil healthier, even in a dry year. Granted, both of us had nearly zero corn yield. The silage that we took off there was nearly twice of what he took off. So there is a resiliency there. We had a growth, we had the plant, we had the factory. We just didn't quite have enough to take it there. We definitely see benefits to it. Yeah, I've done the same thing. I've had a soil thermometer at two inches, bare ground, 107 degrees. Take it in two inches down under protection and it's 20 degrees cooler. So that's, that's huge. And yeah, the trafficability, the firm soil that can hold your equipment up when it's wetter is a big, is a big deal when you're no-tilling because you don't, you hate fighting ruts and you hate doing it, but it's just, it's, yeah, when you plant in a lot of our fields, we can have one dry spot that's almost bone dry and you'll, you're still taking the, the equipment and planter across low-lying areas that are just muck and you're still able to get across the whole field and, and get a stand. And, yeah, just being able to support that equipment in the low areas. The winter rye has helped us that way. It's amazing how far you can plant. And if the rye is actually growing, usually you can still plant it. 
I mean, even if it is, like you say, just pure mud, um, beans are very forgiving on that. I mean, we can, we can put them in there and, and get them to grow. Um, even though we've used a lot of moisture with that rye, there's still a lot of moisture there because we don't have that evaporation. Right, but you still have to really pay attention because a couple of days time, one way or the other, and... It can dry out in a hurry. And even after you spray it, you, that, that rye will still suck moisture. So. For at least five or six days. Yeah, there's, there is a fine line there. So I think a lot of what I hear is that we've got long-term no-till producers. Soil health principles are followed pretty, pretty religiously almost. You know, I think a lot of the advantage that that producers gain from these practices is is from the soil structure. You know, we, we've got the you get the roots and the biology a chance to give you good structure, and that structure I, I think you mentioned you know it, it allows your equipment to be supported better. And a lot of time out we'll get an argument you know I, I can't no till it's gonna it's gonna make my soil hard and compact. Well, not necessarily if you're you're following if you're following good crop rotation if you're maybe have some traffic control out there then you shouldn't have compaction issues but really really what that is is that i think there's a confusion of compaction and structure that structure is really what's going to hold hold your equipment up a structure is going to allow water to infiltrate better that structure is going to hold more hold more water in those drought years and that water is all plant available um, so is there, I mean, have you ever, do you hear, you know, if I, I've got compacted soils that I, I need to do something about it? Uh, you know, I usually hear maybe I need to rip it or, or in, in my situation, I hope they're going to plant a cover crop to address it. Um, do you guys have any compaction issues or do you, or how do you manage them? Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that? Because I realize, you know, some years like this, you're going to have, you're going to have some areas that are compacted probably because you just had to get in there to harvest. Definitely. Yeah. The compaction is, like I said before, is my pet peeve on the farm. So that's why we're doing control track of traffic flow, but it still happens. Um, so the cover crops do a good job. And I used to think radishes were great for breaking up compaction, but still we've got some areas, compaction layers where that root will go down and it'll kink over the side. So you still need some smaller fine roots that can get in between some of the little nooks and crannies that maybe the microorganisms, earthworms or root channels or whatever to help weave their way in there and try to bust some of that compaction up. I mean, tillage begets tillage. I mean, you can try to take it out, but it's just gonna happen that much quicker, that much faster when you return. Yeah, the next time it rains, it's gonna... Yep. You learn to have thick skin. Um, <clears throat> the neighbors uh, that do tillage um, definitely like to ridicule. Um, but uh, long term, it does work. Um, a good thing to do is uh, just to prove to yourself of, that you're making headway is take the rainfall simu uh, simulation type thing with the ring and pour the one inch of water in. In the no-till, I mean, the first inch, ours disappears just in minutes. You go to, over to the neighbors and it might be 15 or 20 minutes. The interesting one is when you do the second inch. The no-till, you kind of set your watch and eh, maybe 15 minutes, it'll be gone. The other one, well, if you, if you like certain beverages, you probably need a 12-pack until it's gone. Um, so that structure, yeah, it, it's very important for that, just getting that water in there. And that's what gives us that resiliency. And like you say, it's not hard. It's, it, it, that structure holds you up. 
I mean, even though when it's dry, the guys that till, they'll come with their sharp pointed rod or pentometer and think, oh, your soil's too compact. It, it's not. The water, when you dig that up, you can see all the rootworm channels. You can just visually see the, the difference compared to something that's chiseled and field cultivated. You tip a, a sand shovel that over in spring and there's, there's not the channels. It's, there's, and that's even though we broadcast the nutrients, um, those channels help even get your P and your K down in the soil a lot more than what a lot of people realize. We haven't found that stratification near as bad as what we thought we would at first. I think it's because of those big pores getting that nutrients down there. It is amazing though how fast some clay hills can start to heal. Um, we've had areas that when we started 15 years ago with some of the no-till that were really, really light colored, um, very little humus dark color in, and now that has gone from just a, a, a very light coloring to actually the top four or five inches having a pretty nice dark color, nice normal looking soil. Um, it, it takes time, but it is kind of surprising how, how well sometimes they respond. Especially I've seen in some gravel areas where I started farming something and on a yield map you could just see it was just like a line that just drops off. Just drop off tremendously into these area, lighter soils and you know it took about 10 years of no-till and using cover crops and all of a sudden that graduated to now. I mean it really reduced, the, I mean it really helped the production on those areas tremendously. And on hilltops like you said. It, you know, after so many years, it really balances, you know, they really respond. Uh, one thing I think has changed a lot is that since when I started no-tilling like 30 years ago, there's a lot more resources to help you now than there was. I mean, you have, uh, for instance, I do a lot of work with cover. If I want to know what blends, I just go down and talk to people at the, our local NRCS and talk to the SDSU extension, so there's a lot more resources. Um, there's a mentor program that people can call experienced no-tailers through the Soil Health Coalition. Uh, so there's a lot more net networking, which helps a lot. If you got questions, you can. There's people out there that'll help you, and there's people that help you, you know, with the cover crops. I mean, there's equip programs. There's just so many resources that you, are available to you that you should look into to to help going forward for people that are just getting into no-tilling and cover crops. Yeah, the seed availability is a lot more. Um, oh, 16 years ago when we started, I mean, no one had the seed on hand. You had to order it, it wait a week or more to get it at times. Now it's readily available a day or two or even on hand. Um, that helps a lot too. So we've got better, or certainly more sources for information, um, especially for the new transitioner. Um, you know, I think some of what those transition years are, are difficult is, or what makes those transition years difficult is because you don't have a lot of the advantage that a good no-till soil health system brings. And you still have some of the disadvantages from a, maybe a heavier tillage system. And so you've, you've always, you'll hear people often talk about, I've got you know, three to five years before I really see those benefits. Um, you know, a lot of those benefits we had discussed are, are, are around the soil structure, around organic matter, around the biology. Um, and you know, we do know what builds soil structure. 
Uh, we've got to have a living root in the soil. We've got to have diverse root systems out there, which means different crop types and cover crops. Um, even perennials, if you can make that work. I know we're kind of row crop focused uh, with this discussion today, but um, do you guys, do you look at, if you go to your fields, um, do you get a spade out, do you get a shovel, do you ever look at the structure, can you tell, um, you know, a, a field that's been, say that you've owned for, for a couple of decades been in the system, as opposed to one that you maybe just started renting the past couple of years, can you tell the difference between that, the structure of those soils, even if it's the same soil type? A lot of times I, I do carry a spade a lot, but a lot of times I'll just pull up plants. Yep. And, and look at the root mass and look at the granulation, the texture, and all the earthworms and soil biology in there is kind of what I do. I know there's a lot of areas where I wish, you know, I, I could dig deeper because, it, you know, the profile, it changes dramatically as you, as you go deeper. But, yeah, that's my main, main way of checking is just pulling up roots and looking at them. You know, I think that's, that's important to mention. You don't, you don't need to be a soil scientist to identify to identify the, the good aggregate spill. You don't need to be a soil scientist to know that, you know, I've got more, I've got more life. A lot of it you can't see with your own eye, but you can certainly see the earthworms. You know, that's probably one of the better indicators that, that a producer can use. If you've got very few earthworms that are out there and the next year you go out and you see a few more and the next year after that you see a few more. I think those earthworms are one of the easiest things to, to say, maybe, maybe I'm going on the right, on the right path here. What about you, Daniel? I would say if you've never looked at a soil under a microscope, if you got the chance, do it. Um, if you take a soil that has been tilled for decades versus a no-till field, as you look under the microscope, the diversity and movement is unreal. When they say there are more microorganisms and a handful of healthy soil than humans on the earth, I believe it. I mean, when you look under the microscope, there is just tremendous variability and a lot of them we have no idea they're not classified um, they're organisms that what they all do haven't been studied we don't know um, that's where there's biological products and things you can add to the soil and do but having nature build it itself I mean we have some of the microbes there it just takes time for them to recover um, yeah it's it's very interesting if you've never had that opportunity to see what's there, not just the macro, but the micro. I guess I'd say that's something I'm looking forward to going through this process of conventional tillage towards the no-till systems, is being able to watch that. And I think we're gonna, we're gonna document it too as we go so that we have things to look back on. That's something we're looking forward to on our farm. Yeah, I think that documentation process is some Something that's important to to remind you, you know, hopefully ten years from now you've gone through this and things are soil wise looking looking up. You know, if you, I think if you've been in it maybe for a while, maybe you forget maybe my soils, if you if you have that clod even, if you keep that someplace and then you compare it ten years from now from the same field, you should be able to visually see a difference. Hopefully it's a little darker, you got more organic matter. Hopefully you have more pore space. Just some of those things you can easily compare. Uh, I think that's important to do for a producer. Texture has more to do with the sand, silt, clay combination, um, which we really can't change even with no-till. Structure is something we can change dramatically. Um, 
a good healthy no-till soil, oftentimes they talk about a 25, 25, 50, um, meaning how much pore space to how much water and how much soil is there. Um, there is visually a lot of open pores. Um, when you talk of some of the soils that have been tilled, the pores are much smaller and much fewer. Um, just being able to see that um, helps encourage a person and keep you going at it even in a wet year. I mean, even though it's wet and saturated, when you flip that open with the spade, you can find the pores, you can see that granulated, the worm castings, the other, sometimes you can even see the white fungi growth and things. Um, we're in a heavily tilled soil, it's more or less dirt. <laughs> yeah, yep. And the, the texture comment brings up an interesting point that, like you said, you know, we can't really change the texture of our soil, but the texture can determine how difficult or easy it can be to transition to some of these things. And that's where growers with heavier soils, heavier clay soils, you know, will oftentimes struggle more than growers that maybe are in a, a sandier or, or silt, ideally, you know, situation. And so that does play a big role, which I'm sure, especially in your situation, you're going to find out as you go what fields are more cooperative, right, than others, and you maybe already have. The clay soils have been much more difficult and take longer to transition, but those fields, once we have transitioned, had that, that better structure, actually probably support equipment and things better than a sandy soil, because there's moisture there more of the year. The microbes are there, the sandy soil, they die out. Um, when it gets drier, the populations decrease. The clay soils after a long-term no-till are very forgiving, but that initial start is very, very frustrating at times. Well, that texture comment probably also applies if you go back to the cover crop conversation, right? So you, you were talking about how you really haven't had an issue with cereal rye um, and some of those small grains taking up too much moisture. But if you were on a sandy knoll or had, you know, sandier textures, definitely more important. Um, can also change some of the pH issues as texture goes. So it would not only apply to that no-till and structure conversation, but to the, the cover crops you're using and the termination time being really important as well. So we, we throw the term resilience around when it comes to, especially when you're in soil health circles, we say your, your soil is more resilient. It's more resilient to the wet years, it's more resilient to drought, heat, cold. Um, but really what makes that resilience, um, the long and short of it is that it's an increase in organic matter. It's an increase in, those aggregate, in the aggregate stability. Um, you know, we had talked about how if you had to impact a field, um, Again, you'll talk if you're putting in, um, you work with producers that have put tile in maybe, and how, that's, how that cut recovers faster in a no-till field or a soil health field than a tillage system. Well, you know, both have gone through the same impact. They both had pretty aggressive tillage that's gone through there. Why does one recover? It's that resilience. We've got the, we've got the organic matter and the microbes that are there and they can recover faster. Um, what are your guys' thoughts or what, are your th what do you think resilience is or what does it mean to your operation? Yeah, with the intense rainfall events that we had, I mean, our soil was staying in place a lot better. I mean, not saying that we didn't lose any topsoil or we don't have any eroded or washed out cuts that we lost some soil because we had some, you know, immense rainfall events that really you can't control, but we're keeping a lot more soil on our fields than everybody else. And even when it comes to this winter, you know, it's amazing where 
I've seen some fields, and even a guy that took out a fence line and did a little bit of tillage, you know, there's black snow in the ditch. You know, in our system, you don't see that. You're keeping it where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah, even though we've got some washouts just from the concentrated flow, we don't get that whole sheet erosion where it takes the whole surface and all we're left with little rocks and things. It it's minimized the erosion. I mean, we still get erosion, but not to the degree. Yeah, it's not a perfect system, but it's as close as we can come so far. Sure. As you've minimized tillage, have you seen um, some responses or has it taken a while? Uh, we've seen some, I would say, compared to some of our neighbors that have done more of the deep ripping and things. We're, we still see some in the ditch and that's kind of where the, you know, the blowing and that, but yeah you drive by one of their fields and it's black mm -hmm. you know you can see that it's better but it's definitely not it's not the answer right. you need to keep moving in the right direction with it take some time yep yeah. and then i know we talked earlier with some of the programs we've done some waterways through the government and and established some of that and we've noticed a lot of big change with that i mean just getting the fields to drain better and and taking it and having a flat bottom for it and seeding that to, to grass and, and then the CRP has has a program to help you with those acres now that you've taken out of production. it's That's kind of a nice nice way to transition the, the stuff that's cutting and, and giving you issues. Good. And yeah, we're doing a lot of waterway, waterway work also. We're putting a flat bottom pan in the bottom so that you know, the water isn't focused in one point and eroding down as much and try and do a better job with our herbicides around the field borders. You know, we want to keep a, a living perennial. Nice, I like, I love having brome grass, but I've seen too many situations where you have to use high rates of Roundup and people will kill out their fence lines. So it just leaves weeds and it's prone to a lot of bad things. And the waterways are that way too. We've narrowed up the waterways with our herbicides and just getting oneself to back off and, and let let a few weeds that you got to come back and treat to let that grass get back there. Having the grass just in the angle of the ditch isn't, and we need some on the flat beyond the ditch. And that is sometimes a challenge letting that, going after that last weed, you get another foot killed. So a lot of times when I have this similar conversation with producers about buffer strips and, and waterways, they'll say that, you know, that's their land and they own it and they need to make money off that and, you know, that shouldn't be controlled. So having all of you, I'm, I know the Staley's have a, a very large riparian strip too, right? So having the experience you have with waterways and buffer strips, how do you reply to that? How do you reason with those folks in explaining the benefits that you have and why you do it rather than have that extra you know what acre <laughs> i guess what i've seen is is if you want to go after everything pretty soon there's nothing left you know mm -hmm. if, if you if you treat it like dirt it's going to be dirt you need to you need to have those buffer strips and that to to help hold your soil in place or pretty soon you won't have anything there, you know, at least with the buffer zone, if you have cattle or some of that, you can, you can use that for, you know, a hay crop or something. Mm -hmm. But if it erodes into a gully, you, you can't do anything with that. So I guess that's, that's where I would go with that is, is you, you got to treat it right. Yeah. You can't afford to ship your soil down, down the river. 
it's expensive to go retrieve, even if it doesn't go too far. The buffered zones just do such a good job. If you do have some runoff, you know, you know, infiltrating anything that before it gets to the stream, that they're just too important not to have to, to environmentally. Can you speak to the large area that you've put into perennials a little bit? Yeah, I have an area, um, since we're in the fire seal watershed and they've had so much, they've had a lot of trouble with runoff and phosphorus buildup in Lake Mitchell that they've had quite a push to try to to uh, clean up that watershed. So I have uh, about 300 acres in that watershed that I've just been working on made it into a riparian buffer the whole thing and have been trying at one time it was really overgrazed so it's pretty much been taken over by uh, bluegrass and brome and I've been doing a lot of controlled burns and and uh, to try to bring back the natives and it takes took me like four or five burns but you can get them back and um, so it's kind of a, good to see you can get get it back to what it was like you know, a couple hundred years ago, if you spend enough time. Are you grazing it, or are you I, just? I'm not grazing mine, but I mean, I think, I think obviously there. You know, if you do a good job grazing, you can graze it. You just have to do use rotational grazing and keep the cattle out of the, out of the, you know, especially right out of the, out of the, creek line or the water area. It's at different times of the year. So, I mean, that's important. And there's plenty of research, there's plenty of help out there to do that, so. Okay, so um, I think there's been a great discussion today. Uh, I think we've had uh, really good input and insight from everyone. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. It's been a um, learning experience for me. I know I always learn the most from producers. And so, you know, it, you get in certain positions and you kind of kind of get the stigma of it's all book learning, but really for the most part, we really learn the most from producers. And so that's what I think is gonna be the great advantage for anyone that's gonna watch this later is they're gonna learn from four producers that are living this out uh, in, in the real world and making a living off it. So I'd like to thank you for your time. And I think that's all I got. That wraps up this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Please keep checking out this podcast. Share it with anyone that you think might benefit or might be interested. And our next round of podcasts coming up will be featuring the same style of interview and from our same time in South Dakota, but it will be with a different group of farmers. This one, these interviews have been from Mitchell, South Dakota. The upcoming podcast will feature our time in Crooks, South Dakota. So stay tuned and make sure you guys check out all of those. My name is Barrett Self. Have a great week. Thanks for checking us out.